And so moms, it's okay. Whatever choice you choose, that's your choice. And it's okay. And know that it's hard. And sometimes we're going to make choices that aren't the ones we want to choose or maybe aren't the ones that our families want us to choose. But we're just doing the best we can with what we have. I'm Ashley White, the host of Joy on the Journey podcast, a weekly podcast all about defining, finding, and maintaining joy on the journey of life. I have promised transparent and groundbreaking conversations with women that have impacted my life. And this one is going to be real special. This week's guest is Dr. Letitia Banks. She is the Associate Dean for Inclusive Excellence and Community Partnerships for the University of Cincinnati's College of Arts and Sciences. She is also a co-founder and executive board member of the Black Faculty Association. Dr. Bates is a trained sociologist whose research focuses on institutional inequality. Dr. Bates and I go back more than 20 years. Who's that old? I don't know. Who is that? Who is that? So I am so happy that she's here. Thank you so much, sis, for joining the podcast. Oh, I am super honored to be here. Thank you for letting me share this space with you. I know what this podcast means to you and what the Lord is doing through it. And so I just feel honored to be here with you in this space. Thank you so much. Y'all, we go back to high school in the hallways of Kenwood Academy High School on Chicago's South Side. And I just have to tell you how proud I am of you. I mean, while I operate in the, the diversity and inclusion space, I have a deep appreciation for your work and how you are making sure that there are space and opportunities for the next generation of Black girls to come behind you. So we're going to hop right into the first segment. So Trish, how do you define joy? So it's, um, you know, as any educator, I want to be prepared, right? And so, you know, you, you say, this is the gist of what we'll be thinking about and talking about. And so I have really been sort of agonizing to be prepared about what my definition of joy is. I think it's one of those things that you don't necessarily think about, you know, wanting or needing to have a definition for, you know, as a Christian, I believe that joy comes from the Lord. You know, it is one of the fruits of the spirits. It's one of the ways that we should be thinking about and operating in our life. All of those things that we know as as Christians, right? This joy I have, the Lord didn't, the, the world didn't give it, the world can't take it away, right? And still, as we move through our daily life, what does joy mean to us? Um, and so I've been really thinking a lot about that. Um, and I came up with two things I think I want to say about joy in my life. Um, and one is that joy is evolving, right? Mm-hmm. I think 
as humans, you know, we age and we go through life. And so that tish that you knew walking through the halls of Kenwood Academy, what joy meant and what gave me joy in, in, in the year 2000 is quite different than what gives me joy in the year 2023 at this big age. And so I think that joy is evolving, right? Um, I also think that joy has to be intentional. Mm. Um, there are so many times in life where it's really hard to reach for joy or feel joy. And we need it to yeah. move on, right? We need it to exist. And so it has to be intentional. You have to choose joy. And I've had so many um, instances in my life where that's exactly what I had to do. It was dark. It was hard. It was heavy. And either I was going to die in that darkness or I was going to choose joy and choose something different and lean on the faith um, in the Lord that I have. And so I think, you know, the answer is it's evolving um, ever evolving. And it has to be a choice. That's, mm. that's what joy is. And I mean, there are all these ways it manifests, right? It's a song, it's a smell, it's a feeling, it's a place that brings you back to a place from the past. Um, but it has to be a choice and you have to let it evolve over time. Oh, that's so good that it's choosing joy. I also love that you say it's evolving. Because mm -hmm. sometimes we get stuck in, it has to be this. And if it's not this, or it's not this version of yeah. this, then, then it's not. But it's being open to what is joy in this season? Mm -hmm. Girl, maybe even in this day or in this, <laughs> in this moment, depending on what's happening, right? Because life be life in. Absolutely. Um, and so it's a choice. It's a choice. So what do you think empowers you to make the choice to choose joy? Um, I think my faith, you know, it would be disingenuous to not start with that. Um, because in the darkest days, my faith and leaning on that is what has gotten me through. Um, and my family, you know, I think it is really difficult to just be, to, to not choose joy when you have little people that are looking at you. I have three amazing children um, who are looking at you, who are determining whether they're going to choose joy, right? And so my choice to choose joy is also teaching them about the choices that they have as it relates to being able um, to choose joy. And I think it's important to say, because I want to be clear, that sometimes you won't want to choose joy. And that's okay too, right? Like, it's okay to have a moment where it's like, I know that I should choose joy, but I'm going to sit here in this sadness for a minute. And I think that we're all entitled to that. I don't want to um, suggest or make it come off as I'm saying, like, every day you have to choose joy. No, sometimes you are going to make the choice to not choose joy. Um, and that's OK, too. But I think I get I get the strength to choose to choose joy from my children and my husband and my family. Um, yeah, I think that's that's the short of it. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I think even in those moments when choosing feels like, I don't know if I have an option. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like making that decision. I want to mm -hmm. sit where I am. Mm -hmm. It's recognizing that I am making that decision. Yep. yep. And owning that choice as well. And yep. being okay. 
Yep. And being okay with it. And I think too, having people, you know, your family, your squad, who are going to give you space to not choose joy, but not let you sit there for too long. Mm. Right. And so it's dangerous, I think, if you make the choice to not choose joy, and then that's the final choice. Right. <laughs> that, that can be the final choice. And sometimes that is our personal final choice. But having your squad around you, that's going to be like, OK, girl, <laughs> you've been sad for a week now. What are we going to do? Right. Um, I have a saying that I always say, you can feel how you feel, but will you, what are you going to do with those feelings? Right. And so having folks to be like, we respect that you are experiencing sadness. We validate your rights um, to experience that sadness. And we're going to stand here with you to make sure that that sadness doesn't swallow you. Mm. And we're going to help you choose joy. Um, even if you can't choose that yourself, right? You're entitled to your feelings. Feel how you feel. But what are you going to do with those feelings? Oh, that's so good. I want to ask you about your squad. Yeah. Uh, I don't, because like you, we have had some of the same squad, squad members mm -hmm. for 20 years or more. Yeah. What do you think has been the most sustaining factor of your, your squad? genuine love and grace. Um, I know you know the story very well. You know, all of us are all over the country, you know, and so the amount of FaceTime, um, phone time with busy lives is not always as much as we would like it to be. But that's the beauty of the like deep, deep, genuine love of those relationships. These are women, um, shout out Lanisha, shout out Erica, mm. shout out Samantha, who, um, you know, they know where all the bodies are buried all the way back <laughs> to 96, you know, and it's just the love to support each other, even if it's not physically being able to be in a room with each other, mm -hmm. to know that that love exists. And also, I will say this not using distance as an excuse because when we need to show up for each other, when we need to be in a room with each other, when we need to just have our eyes on each other, we do that intentionally. Um, and we have to make sacrifice to do that. And you make sacrifice for people who you love. Um, and so that's it. It's just the love for each other. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. I want to get deeper into your journey. When most girls in the late 90s and the early 2000s were getting ready to go to college, I could count on my hands those that wanted to be doctors and lawyers and even high school teachers. But when did sociology spark yeah. your interest? Um, so I would not have been on your hands had you been counting no. those girls because I did not go um, to school thinking, you know, like, oh, I want to get a PhD. I didn't even know what a PhD was, right? Like, uh, like a number of kids from our high school, we were smart, high achieving kids who came from um, low income homes, moderately low middle class homes for some of us. Um, <clears throat> first generation families, right? Like I'm, I'm first generation. I didn't know what to expect. Um, I knew that I wanted to like do a good job. I knew I wanted to, um, change the world, but I didn't know how, um, I thought I wanted to be a therapist, right? Like I went to school thinking like black folks need that. We need therapy <laughs> around these parts. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna become a therapist. Um, 
And that didn't quite go as I planned, but I took my first sociology class um, and for the first time was able to understand and make sense of my own circumstances, mm-hmm. make sense of the fact that Kenwood Academy was a magnet school and what that meant, what made us different from the neighborhood schools, right? Why I didn't go to my neighborhood school when I started um, school. South Shore High School would have been my neighborhood um, high school in Chicago, Um And so why not just go to my neighborhood school, right? I knew, always knew deep down inside of me, like something was interesting that was happening here, but I never had the language to make sense of how we were making differences between people, uh, between children, between neighborhoods. Chicago is notorious um, for that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I didn't have the language for that. And sociology gave me the language for that. And I really wanted to contribute to solving this problem of systemic racism, systemic classism, systemic sexism. And I didn't know those words when I started school and sociology gave me those words. Um, And then I learned that if I wanted to do this in a very particular kind of way, teach the next generation that I would have to get a PhD. And so that's how it started. I didn't even know I wanted to get a PhD. I knew I needed a PhD. Um, until I understood what it was I wanted to do and had really great mentors to push me in the right direction. Oh, wow. 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 Yeah. For me, my neighborhood school would have been South Shore. Mm -hmm. And so my parents, specifically my mom and her mentors and mentors were like, okay, um, Let's test, let's really get into the, you know, the Magnum program and and reach a little bit higher. But I don't think we also didn't have the language. I certainly didn't. I was just following whatever my mom was like, no, let's, let's go. Let's look for a different school. Oh, okay. Um, I want to. And it's funny, Ashley, I want to say something really quickly because my mom didn't even have the language. Shout out to Mr. Carter. I think he um, is still living. He was the counselor, principal, assistant principal at Bremar Elementary School, which is where I went to elementary school. He was the one, right, who was like, you're going to because I probably would have went to South Shore if it would have been up to my mother because she didn't know. Right. My cousins mm-hmm. went to South Shore. She didn't she didn't know. Right. And so how do we learn what we don't know? And who are the people who know the things to to put us on the path that we need to be on? Um, Not to suggest there aren't successful young people out of South Shore because we know that they are. We know that they are dynamic children at all of the neighborhoods. Absolutely. um, In every city. It's just how do we make sense of how we separate them by the structures? Absolutely. And then I took over, girl. I don't took over. I'm sorry. You ain't going to invite me. (laughs) Absolutely will. Because it also then speaks to the larger issue of funding. Yeah. Funding in our communities, investing in our communities, not giving up on uh, inner city schools, inner yep. city kids, um, busing. It speaks to the whole yep. larger, to, yep. to the system, right? Yep. And yep. how it impacts generations. Yep. So I do want to talk about, that leads me right into the next question, that you have chosen to continue to study institutional inequality while married to a Black man and raising three Black children. H- how are you? <laughs> Girl, I'm tired. <laughs> I'm tired. Most days I'm mad as hell. Um but I'm okay. You know, I think um, they are the reason why I do the work, right? And so a lot of the work that I'm doing is selfish work, 
right? Mm -hmm. Like I have children who I want to be able to go into spaces and to thrive and not be mistreated and to be given a fair opportunity. I hope to one day have grandchildren, right? And so the work that I am doing, um, it's funny, in a lot of these DEI spaces, the question of what's your why always comes up, right? And my why is so that my children will not have to experience systematic and institutional racism. That is, that's my why. It's the reason why I do it. Um, and it's what keeps me going, even when it's really tired, tiring, even when, uh, you know, white supremacy is large and is looming. Um, I have to come home and look at my babies and know that I am trying to create a better world um, for them and for generations to come and to really center the voices of Black people and Black women um, in Black communities. And that work is important to me. It is what I believe I was born to do. Oh, that's good. That's good. Do you, so do you believe God purposed your life for this work? And and why? Why do you think that? Yeah, I think so, because I ran from it. And then, um, and so in the academy, one can make a couple of sort of in intentional choices about the kinds of work that they want to do, right? And so um, on the one hand, I could simply be, and I don't mean that as a value judgment, I mean that just as a one thing, do one thing, I could simply just be a professor. And I could just go into the classroom and I could teach and I could come home and mind my business and I could do my own work in the summer and don't have to talk to nobody about anything. Um, and that's what I was doing for a little bit. Right. And then I just had this unction on me to really get um, loud about the inequality that Black faculty were experiencing in the institution. And so the Black Faculty Association was born um, as a result of that. And I was still sort of um, hiding behind my more senior colleagues who were um, also co-founders of the Black Faculty Association and, and doing the work, but not officially doing the work for the institution, right? And so uh, guiding students as they were putting together protests for the institution, teaching students about resistance and, and arming them with skills that they needed to do that work and, and getting louder and louder over time. And then this position that I currently hold, the Associate Dean of Inclusive Excellence, for Inclusive Excellence and Community Partnership became available and I almost did not apply. And it was like, you're crazy, you have to apply. That position was created for you, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I know that is not necessarily true, but I believe it is it is it is biblically true. Right? Mm. That position, this position was created for me in a very specific time um, for me to, to do this work. And I believe the way in which the Lord has allowed it to be set up, it is clear that it was ordained by him for me to be able to do it and do it in a very particular kind of way. And that's how I'm able to do it. Like I doing this work for some people, for all of us, is really scary. I have less fear because I know that I am doing it because God said do it. And the moment that he says stop doing it, I'm going to stop doing it. And because of that, I know he's going to protect me. Mm. Oh, that's so good. I want to ask two questions. As you think about this role that, that's, that's fairly new. As you want, I want you to think about the end of the role. Yeah. 
whether that's in 30 years, 50 years, however long God has you serving in this role, what is the legacy and the impact that you hope to make? So I think about this every day because as a um, type A perfectionist, I'm always thinking about whether I am making an impact. And so this is actually something I think about probably unhealthily (laughs) too, too often. I think that if I were to stop doing this work in the next five years, I would want people to look at the college the College of Arts and Sciences, and see it different. And so what does that mean, see it different? See it as a space where students and staff are treated with dignity and respect, um, where they are paid for the work that they do, um, and where more people see people that look like them. Mm -hmm. Um, And so increasing the diversity Um, And what people see in our college and increasing the success rate of both our faculty of color, our black faculty, our Latinx faculty, our native indigenous faculty, um, our Asian faculty, um, students and staff, that people literally are able to look at the profile of the college and see my impact. Um, And if I've done that, I've done all right. I just want to do a good job. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And I believe you have spoken with such passion um, that you will continue to do the work that you have put your hand to the plow um, and you have refused. (laughs) You have refused stubbornly um, to look back and we will be made the better. And I say we because it's bigger than the work that you're doing in Cincinnati. Because that will have ripple effects as your students graduate and leave and go across the country, go across the world, spreading the message of inclusivity um, and hope and breaking barriers and glass ceilings. You are doing a work that will impact generations. And so I want you to know that on those hard days, excuse me, on those hard days where it's like, is anything moving? <laughs> is the needle moving at all that the work you are doing, you are laying the foundation, you are continuing the groundwork that has already been laid by our forefathers. Keep going, sis. Yeah, I'm going to do my best. Keep I'm going. Do my best. I want to ask about, you spoke about the importance of mentors. And mm-hmm. I know, um, doing my research, I, I stalk my guests, y'all. I do. <laughs> Whether I have known them personally or not, I also stalk um, them just to make it's sure. The good I kind, know. It's the good kind. It's the good kind. I'm not in jail. Yes, but the good kind. And so I know that you are often highly rated and sought after by university students for mentorship. And I want to ask why it's important to you to give back. Um, because I am not confused about how I got where I am and it's because people gave back to me. Right. I think one of the, um, we say a lot of things that aren't true, but we say them because like, we always say them, right? Like sticks and stones may make my bones, words never hurt. Biggest lie ever told, right? Like, um, words absolutely hurt. Um, we often say like, you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. 
Biggest lie. If I don't have boots, if I don't have straps, I can't pull yeah. myself up, right? And so I am not confused. I know that a number of people gave me boots, gave me straps, showed me how to tie them and pull them up. And that is the only reason why, of course, the grace of God as well, um, I am able to be sitting where I'm sitting. And so it's important to me to repay that, right? Um, because I wouldn't be where I am if it wasn't for mentors. And I'm, I have a responsibility. I have a responsibility to give that back. I also think too, you know, coming from, um, you know, inner city Chicago, being primarily raised by a teenage mother, shout out to my stepdad. We don't use the word step, that's just my dad. Um, growing up, you know, in poverty, there are a lot of kids like me who want to be in places like where I am, but don't see that as a possibility, right? And so it's important to me that they see what the possibility is, that they see that they can show up authentically, right? I don't have my earrings on today, but I got some big hoop earrings that say Dr. Bates. And I, and I wear them because I want students to know that there's a way in which they can move throughout these spaces authentically themselves and they don't have to squelch who they are. Anybody who comes in contact with me, be that the president of the institution, the provost of the institution, they know I'm just a little black girl from the South side of Chicago. And that is such an important part of my identity. Um, and I think these students are taught that they have to like hide that or squelch that, mm -hmm. right? And so part of why it's important for me to give back and to mentor is because I want to show them, right? Like there's a way to be who you are be proud of who you are, be proud of where you came from um, and still be successful, right? Like those things are not in juxtaposition of one another. They go together. Absolutely. Absolutely. I also have to ask mentorship, like any relationship is a two-way street. Mm-hmm. As a mentor, you you give, but then your mentee also gives to you. Yes. So as you think about some of your mentee-mentor relationships, can you think of uh, one or two things that you've gained as a result of serving as a mentor? Oh, girl, I always say these mentorships are so self-serving. These kids <laughs> keep me young, okay? <laughs> right? And so on the one hand, it's like, oh, I'm able to give back. Oh, no, no, no. I keep young people around me um, so that I can stay young, so that I can learn from them. Because I think part of my experience with the older generation, particularly the older generation of Black women, is they didn't spend enough time with us to be able to see things through our lens. Mm. And so in some ways that created adversarial relationships, right? Um, there's this whole conversation about like, do we have to wear stockings or not, right? Um, this is this great debate in this generational divide, right? And so I wonder if like we had spent more time together talking about why we hate stockings and why they think stockings are important. That's a bit of a silly example, but it's like one of those examples, right? Where there's this clear generational divide. I want to participate in the breaking down of the generational divide. And so I need these young people to be in conversation with me, right? So that we can talk about words and language, right? Um, so that I can be kept abreast to continue to ensure that I'm doing my work in a relevant manner, mm -hmm. right? So if I'm using language that doesn't resonate with them, I can't be of use to them. I can't move the needle. And so as much as, they need me. I need them too, because I want to continue to do a good job, but I need to continue to understand the relevancy of the work. And it changes with each generation. 
So they mentor me as much as I mentor them. I'm a firm believer of mentoring up, down, and sideways. I want to ask as we are, ah, I got to wrap up, but I have to ask how your children um, have impacted your career and ambition. Because you mentioned that you are a type A perfectionist, but you also have three young children. So who I'm trying to keep out of therapy, girl, or at least trying to keep them out of therapy because I've ruined them, right? We should all go to therapy at some point just to work through things, but I'm trying to keep them off the couch specifically because of something I did, right? Um, It is, it's a challenge. And so shout out to working mothers everywhere who are constantly trying to make decisions that are in the best interest um, of your family, who are having to make um, sacrifices and choose choices that aren't necessarily the choice that you want to choose. You know, um, in the academy, the way that you ascend is you go to a different institution, right? Mm -hmm. And so I am constantly inundated with messages from institutions who would like for me to entertain um, applying for or or, uh, interviewing for a position at their institution, higher level positions, but I've committed to not move my children. Right. And so the commitment to not move my children means that I have to see a different set of choices for my career. Um, I don't regret that at all, because I think that that is part of what love and sacrifice means. Right. It's not just about what I want. My children are a part of our decisions that we make as a family. Right. And so even the decision to take this associate dean role, we talked about that as a family because it did change our lifestyle. Mm. It changed um, whether mommy was going to be at the game the whole time or whether she would be there for the first part and have to leave. It changed whether I had to be at things in the evening, how long my hours were. It changed all of that. And I didn't want to change their lifestyle in a way um, that would make them feel like they were second. You know, when this world is, when when everything is all done and the work is done, I got to come home to them. Um, and so there are sacrifices that have to be made. And so moms, it's okay. Whatever choice you choose, that's your choice. And it's okay. And know that it's hard. And sometimes we're going to make choices that aren't the ones we want to choose, or maybe aren't the ones that our families want us to choose, but we're just doing the best we can with what we have. Yeah. I want to say too, that even that language, even that behavior is, is different from how our generation was raised. Is to even have that family conversation of these are opportunities Mm because this was mommy's, this was my opportunity. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. to even have that open mindedness of, oh no, this doesn't just impact me. This is a ripple effect Mm -hmm. that will impact everyone in the household. Let's have a conversation, let's have a discussion of, let's weigh the pros and the cons of both knowing ultimately your career would be the impacts of I mean let's say what it is right it it would be stalled I could be an associate vice president of diversity equity inclusion somewhere else right now Mm -hmm. right like I could but that's not what suited my family and I also believe I'm not doing done doing the work I need to do here in Cincinnati Yeah. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. And I hope that people take away that beginning lesson of having those open conversations with our children to expose them 
so that they are aware life make life comes with some very difficult decisions everything isn't every promotion isn't a yeah let's get the bag every mm-hmm. <laughs> every great Our money ain't good money Woo. And we expect them to be able to make difficult decisions, but we don't let them see what it looks like to make those decisions, right? They have to see. And the same thing with conflict. We have to be able to expose our children so that they understand conflict is healthy, conflict is necessary, but how we resolve it is equally as important and modeling that behavior. So y'all are doing a great, great job. Great job. Try not to mess them up. (laughs) (laughs) But the fact that that's even a goal, the fact that that is even the goal is is already leaps and bounds above. So as we conclude, the final section is looking ahead. So as a, as a visionary, as a hopeful person for, breaking down walls and barriers and making generational changes. I can't wait to hear your answer to this final question. Would you dare share your, your prayer for where you see yourself in the next five years? Wow. Um, the next five years, um, That is such a hard question. One of the things I do think is true is I will likely still be here in Cincinnati doing the work. Um, uh, I don't know in what capacity, but here doing that work. I just want to continue to contribute, right? And so I hope that my work in the College of Arts and Sciences is finished, right? Like I hope that the work in the College of Arts and Sciences is to a place where it's like, okay, I I can move out the way. I don't want to stay too long, right? And so I think part of what happens when we do this diversity, equity, inclusion work is we stay too long and we are too old in it. Mm. Um, And I don't mean like age old, no ageism here, but like it's time for us to take our talents to a different space. And so in the next five years, I hope that I have contributed to the next generation of young people who are dynamic, who are ready to pick up that work and reinvigorate it, right? I don't ever want to stay too long. And so my prayer is that I don't stay too long um, doing the work and I'm able to pivot in a useful way to continue to be helpful to the next generation of folks who will have no doubt fresher ideas, more innovative approaches as they grow up with technology that I never dreamed of. I want to I hope in the next five years I've created space. Mm -hmm. That's what I hope. That's my prayer that I've created space. And I don't stay too long. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. That's so good that you are mindful of somebody else coming behind you, picking up the torch and running with it. Mostly I'm selfish, child. I don't want to die doing this work. (laughs) I want to die on the beach. Hey, (laughs) I would like to retire. That is my goal. (laughs) Job well done. Here you go. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So how can, if someone is interested in your research, if someone is interested in partnering with you and the University of Cincinnati, how can they uh, get in touch with you? They can find me um, on the University of Cincinnati Arts and Sciences webpage. We have an inclusive excellence webpage. I 
I encourage you all to um, take a look at that. Um, I'm also reached by email, uh, drbatesphd at gmail.com. Um, that's where you can reach me for my consulting work that I do around diversity, equity, inclusion, um, D-Lab Consulting, helping companies uh, build a more inclusive culture for their uh, employees, launching employee resource, resource groups um, and things of that nature. So that's how you can find me doing the work that I was born to do. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Well, sis, thank you so, so much you. for enlightening us, for encouraging us and inspiring us that the next generation will be better. As long as we partner with you in the work that you are doing, you and your colleagues. So y'all, I know she has said so much. So drop it in the comments. What was your, your largest takeaway? I have my evolving joy is one of the things I am going to be taking away. But please be sure to like, share, and subscribe to the channel. And on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify, anywhere you can find podcasts. That is where this is as well. But until we gather again every single Thursday, may God increase your joy, grant you strength for the journey, and give you the courage to tell your story. Bye, friends.